Hello listeners, my name is Dr Chantelle Jessica Lewis. I am the executive producer of Surviving Society. We've got a really exciting episode for you today. Uh, it's an episode actually that was recorded back in November 2022 with myself and Professor Imogen Tyler. We were doing a keynote speech um, at the British Library for the Identities Journal. The title is called uh, Living in the Wake, Colonial Capitalism, Racism, Poverty and Class Struggle. And this was such an important evening, just for me personally, because uh, Imogen Tyler has been a huge influence on my scholarship and my career um, as an academic. She's very much a kind of working class, ac well, academic from working class background, speaks about feminism, class and poverty, and kind of showed me from a young age that there was a way to do sociology that wasn't necessarily kind of stuffy and elitist, and that very much focused on like how we can use our lived experience of inequalities like that, that we grew up with to inform our scholarship um, as academics. So in this episode, we go for a kind of chronology of race and class, both here in Britain and then in the empire. We kind of use um, black scholarship, black subjectivity um, and anti-racist organising as an example of a kind of utopia and what I mean by utopia, like a vision for freedom for everyone. It was so exciting that Imogen had the idea of using um, organisations that I've been fortunate enough to be a part of, like Leading Roots, Surviving Society, um, and then the Lang Lancaster Black History Group, to present how there were people, or there have always been people on the ground, trying to make the connections and solidarities that really do focus on getting rid of Right, structural racism, like removing race, emphasising how much class affects our, our lives and what we can do about it. So yeah, this was a really, really important evening for me as an academic, but also I think we produce a discussion that very much centres how the history of race and class informs the contemporary. Enjoy. Welcome to Surviving Society. A political podcast exploring the local and global politics of race and class from a sociological perspective in conversation with academics and activists researchers and artists we platform discussions between knowledge sharers creatives and intellectuals and change makers our mission is clear political education for the masses grounded in history theory and practice enjoy the episode and please do share with your networks Thank you, colleagues at the British Library, for hosting us, for helping us convene this meeting. Um, I don't need to introduce myself. Um, I'll just remind you that I'm the co-editor of, uh, of the journal Identities, and it's uh, really a pleasure to welcome you all and our wonderful uh, speakers this, this evening. Um, so Identities, the journal, about to mark 30 years um, since it was first launched. So it's not quite as old as the British Library, but... Uh, it's established itself, it's made a contribution, and uh, we've created a space to think critically about the topic that we're discussing tonight, uh, to bring in different methodological approaches, to, to work across different spaces, to connect the micro, the meso, the macro. So the, the very meaning of identity in identities is something which helps us bridge that gap between the inside and the outside, between the personal and the political 
um, which is very consistent with, with the way in which the late Stuart Hall used to think about identities, which, uh, which is important because he was one of our founding editorial board members. So it makes complete sense that we should want to discuss the topics of race and class, um, which in recent years, public discourse on the left behind and the white working class has approached issues of race and class in clear silos. At its worst, we've seen something of an inflammatory pitting of one against the other in headlines such as, I quote, white working class boys are the worst performing ethnic group at school. White working class boys at the bottom of the heap because of a focus on minorities, end quote. These kind of statements ignore the interdependencies, that it is only 11% of pupils who are deemed to be underperforming within the white category relative to the rest of the school pupil population. Um, and that 11% is the 11% that are, um, qualify for free school meals suggests that there's other dynamics at play there, not least class inequalities. That the same free school meal criteria applies to about 40% of Roma kids, um, 25 and 22% of Bangladeshi and, and children with black Caribbean backgrounds should be an indicator that it's not um, a good idea to place these things in, in competition. Uh, and in fact, the story there being really that it's the fact that the kids who qualify for free school meals are the ones um, who are living in relative poverty and that's partly informing their underperformance, quote unquote, within the schooling system or their failure of the school, the, the failure of the schooling system. And it's something which is repeated across, across different ways in which we think about race and class. But what would happen if we put the white pupils in state schools in comparison to the performance of white pupils in private schools? Well, that's not very easily done, as the formal data collection doesn't measure um, private school um, outcomes. Um, so our public discourse kind of removes that from view. It kind of almost disproportionately shields those who are otherwise of the same supposed ethnic or racial category but are highly disadvantaged. And I guess my point in stating that is that the world out there doesn't necessarily correspond with those kinds of sentiments, those headlines, but in fact it does correspond with one where in the last decade black children who make up about 4% of the total population of people aged 10 to 17 years have been four times more likely to be arrested than their white counterparts and nearly three times more likely to receive a caution or a custodial sentence, such that the percentage of black children in custody during the time that the headlines on the white working class and the left behind have been salient, has significantly increased to 28% of the entire population held in youth custody, uh, compared with only 10 years, 15% 10 years ago. So from 4% of a general population, you get to 28% young people in, in youth custody. And in the book that was kindly mentioned, The Cruel Optimism of Racial Justice, I try to explain some of these outcomes. Um, but also why the desire to kind of engage in these topics and try to change the systems perseveres despite some anticipation of possible failure. And of course it makes sense for us as academics that we should continue to believe that the work that we do and the things that we strive for should change the world and have better outcomes. And there's reason to believe that. Things are different. They're not necessarily better in the same way, but they're not the same either. But presently that burden, that labour, is asymmetrical. It lands disproportionately on, 
on racialized minorities. And so a fundamental rebalancing of that, I think, is necessary. And as a society, I think we need to do more to reckon with the, with the socialness as well as the kind of the moral cost of, of not doing so. Um, something which would hopefully support the necessary imagination that takes us through uh, and beyond understandable despair. And who else than uh, Imogen and Chantelle to help us do that? So our two speakers, um, Dr. Chantelle uh, Lewis, uh, a broadcaster and event director, uh, her research is situated at the intersections of, of socio-economic uh, and socio-historical analysis, politics, black feminism, family studies, and racism. She's the co-host and co-founder of Surviving Society podcast. I think had nearly all UK sociologists on at one point or another. Um, and deputy director of Leading Roots. She is currently a junior research fellow in Black British Studies at Pembroke College um, at the University of Oxford. And her intellectual project is, is very much focused around collaborative scholarship, dialogical knowledge production, as well as the democratization uh, of modes of understanding and navita- navigating education. Our second speaker, although they come in a pair, is Professor uh, Imogen Tyler, Professor of Sociology at the University of Lancaster, um, who's written far too many books for me to name, so I'll just mention her last one, uh, which I'm still trying to get through because it's so big. It's uh, Stigma, the Machinery of Inequality. Um, which also comes with some um, exceptional animation, um, which, uh, which we'd like to have a shout out to. Over to you. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you for that introduction, Nasser. Um, and thank you for everyone at Identities Journal for inviting us to speak um, at this event this evening. Before we get started, um, thank you so much again for coming out on this Monday evening um, to hear us speak. A very special thank you to my stepdaughter, Evelyn Miller, for putting together the slides you'll be seeing this evening. So as you can see from this introductory slide, um, Imogen and I decided to pull our our time together to speak to the theme of this evening concerning race and class. This was an exceptionally exciting opportunity uh, for me because it's coming up to 13 years since I started reading Imogen's work as a student. But also, Imogen has been a really important academic mentor to me over the years and a huge cheerleader of some of the more experimental scholarship that I've undertaken. The conversations Imogen and I had about some of the themes we're going to discuss tonight really started around three and a half years ago when we interviewed Imogen on Surviving Society podcast about the stigma thesis, which everyone should get, by the way. It's amazing, and it was never properly launched. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, So, yeah. Imogen was the keynote speaker at the 2019 British Sociological Association Annual Conference, and she used the space to historicise race and class through the lens of stigma as a machinery of inequality. It was one of those presentations on race and class which make you want to be a better scholar. The weaving of history and the contemporary to explain systemic inequality is what Imogen is an absolute master of. And today I feel incredibly privileged to be able to speak with her on this. So my starting point for our presentation actually follows quite succinctly from a question Imogen was asked after the BSA keynote back in 2019. After she presented this epic discussion which centered black struggle in histories of class struggle, one of the first questions from the audience centered on why she hadn't used Bourdieu to discuss inequality and histories of class struggle. I'm paraphrasing, but Imogen replied something along the lines of, 
Why is it when presenting black scholarship in our historical analysis of class struggle, it cannot simply be accepted? I love this response so much, and I feel like it is this question and statement of Imogen's about the canon that I'd like you to keep in mind as we present our provocations this evening. So our collaborative presentation this evening was born through some shared reflections on the relationship between history, theory, and social activism with racism and class struggle. It was also inspired by the different kinds of work we engage in in our lives and communities as sociologists. Some of this scholarship and engagement work is represented here on the slide, um, and we'll return to some other examples shortly, such as my work of surviving society and leading roots, and Imogen's 20 years of scholarship and knowledge production on race and class, as well as her decades of activist work with refugee organizations, anti-poverty groups, and more recently, a community-led uh, black history group in Lancaster. So we've called our talk, Living in the Wake of Colonial Capitalism, Racism, Poverty, Class Struggle, in a nod to the inspirational work of American scholar Christina Sharp. It is with, it is with the idea of living in the wake that we want to begin by talking through our understanding of race and class as historical formations. Then we will briefly discuss what we term the double movement of working between theory and practice. Before we turn to histories of race, class struggle, it feels really imperative here in the British Library, um, somewhere I've actually very rarely been before, so it feels quite strange to be here, but right here, right now, to acknowledge the absolutely perilous state this state is in, uh, in Britain right now, and in particular, the poverty crisis that we're in. In 2020, uh, and these are Joseph Roundtree statistics, 14.7 million people were living in poverty in Britain, and 1.7 million were living in what they define as deep poverty or destitution. That situations in which household income is regularly insufficient to meet your basic needs for housing, food or energy. But we're now in the deepest economic recession, and it's predicted to be the deepest since records began. And we know that millions more are being pulled into poverty and destitution. And I'm focusing really on Britain tonight. More than 30% of children are growing up in poverty, but we know that rate is now growing exponentially. So the cradle-to-grave safety net that was designed by the mid-20th century architects of the welfare state is eroded. We all know that. We're all experiencing that. Conditions in poorer communities across the UK increasingly resemble the first decades of the 20th century, when people in need of relief were dependent upon charitable aid for their survival. So we could take a phenomena like food banks, almost unknown in Britain, they're now uh, before 2010, certainly since the Second World War to 2010. They're now a permanent feature of everyday social relief, with emergency food aid expanding out of church halls, community centres, into schools, workplaces, local authorities. And now we can see our, in our local communities warm banks being opened up to relieve people unable to heat their homes. 
diseases of poverty and want rarely recorded in Britain since the establishment of the post-war welfare state have returned. Seven million people, one in 10 of the population, are currently waiting for hospital treatments and surgery. Life expectancy is falling in Britain for the first time since records began. And earlier this year, social scientists published evidence that austerity cuts directly contributed to 330,000 excess deaths in the UK between 2012 and 19. So in short, people are being disabled and they're dying prematurely because of cuts to vital benefits and services that were previously provided by the state. And I think it's just really important to acknowledge, you know, a snapshot of the state we're currently in before we start thinking about histories and sociologies of race and class. The modern British state was forged in the 20th century through industrialization and through class struggle, and I'll return to that. It was also, of course, forged through empire, colonialism, and post-colonial struggle, and it's been shaped by histories of migration, migration within the British Isles, as well as from former empire and colonies. And the legacies of these histories are highly visible in the current crisis and in the deeply uneven geographies of poverty in Britain that we can see today. In the disproportionate impact of poverty in black and ethnic minority communities. You know, and particularly we see that in the data around Bangladeshi Britons, other Asian, black and uh, black ethnic backgrounds stand out in the data, with more than a fifth of those groups collectively experiencing very deep poverty. But we can also see it in the clustering of poverty in cities such as this, where wealth inequalities are so highly visible, but also in areas such as the north of England and the Midlands, the regions most impacted by post-industrial decline in the 20th century, and most impacted also by subsequent decades of cuts and underinvestment. In short, the return of mass poverty and destitution in Britain, the state we face right now, is entangled with histories of colonialism and empire and with histories of race and class. So when it comes to race and class, we need to begin with the historical formations as terrains not of identity, we'll return to that, but of oppression, exploitation and struggle that are always heterogeneous. By this we mean working through how these inequalities impact everyone. So race, by which here we particularly mean what Barbara and Karen Fields term race craft, are systems of human classification formed, forged as empires expanded, expanded and particularly in terms of racist anti-blackness created by European white elites. Slavers, planters and government officials justified and legitimated the kidnap of Africans as enslaved labour and systems of chattel slavery within concentration camps of plantation systems and within slave societies established in the 18th century in places such as Barbados and Jamaica. Later, Asian lives were captured in systems of indenture. 
Stuart Hall famously describes this as the process through which systems of classification become the object of dispossession of power. In short, classifications are devised to capture, enclose, and exploit black and brown labor across empire. One of the major legacies of colonial capitalism is racism. This legacy is alive and kicking both here in the UK and former colonies. The policing of black lives, the Wimrush scandal, the Rwanda deportation scheme, and of course the conditions faced by those seeking refugee and asylum. Here we can think of more recent examples of the violence experienced by people at Manston Detention Centre in Kent. Taken seriously how these systems of extraction and classification are produced and operationalized, it is also integral for us to recognize and highlight how these processes are resisted. Let's take blackness as an example. What we mean here is that racialization is not just about the process of historical classification of people produced by the powerful, but is continuously changed by people's everyday practices, practices of resistance. In the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804 onwards, white European racist hierarchical forms of classification of black blackness as less than human, categories that evolved through and to justify the Atlantic slave world have been resisted, reworked and co-opted by those who its invention sought to dehumanize and oppress. As Gaminda Bamba reminds us in a really fantastic connected sociologies lecture which you can watch online, um, she reminds us of the place of the Haitian revolution in the making of the modern world. And I just want to reflect briefly on that because it's a really interesting moment in the making, I think, of race and class historically. The Haitian Revolution was the largest rebellion of enslaved people in history. Haiti was a French colony and it came in the wake of the first French Revolution. It saw enslaved African Caribbeans overthrow French colonialism and establish a free nation. While the colonial enslavers created hierarchical categories of race to manage and control populations within slave societies as property, in liberating themselves, the people of Haiti rejected these systems of racial classification and the new Haitian constitution declared that everyone who is black is a free citizen. The meaning of blackness in the Haitian constitution was expansive it included a heterogeneous mix of formerly enslaved, mixed race and indigenous people. It also included indentured white European workers. In short, it instituted a new understanding of being black as a political category of citizenship established through freedom struggles against white colonial property-owning men. So the only group that were excluded from Haitian citizenship uh, were white uh, male um, co colonist uh, property owners. What we want to draw attention to here is that while colonial racist forms of social sorting subjugates people, this has always been fiercely resisted. Imogen previously highlighted how blackness is reclaimed, for example, in freedom struggles against the terrorism of white supremacy, against Jim Crow, segregation, and racial violence in the US. 
Crucially, this black power movement was a movement rooted also in anti-poverty struggles and programs of black welfare and education. Similar struggles against imposed classifications have been adopted by other dehumanized, exploited, racialized groups. And, and one that always springs to my mind is the Dalit Panthers, um, who formed in 1970s in India, who adopted the strategies and terminology of the US Black Panthers in their struggle against caste oppression. And in the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, a notably mixed movement of people, especially young people, against the political whiteness and institutional racism of institutions such as the police and government, and a call also to accurately represent the histories of slavery and empire that made Britain and, like, and lives on in the legacies of racism in the present. Ruth Gilmore, very famous US, I want to say sociologist, but I'm not mm, sure she is. We'll take it. <laughs> uh, famously described racism, and the quote is here, as the state-sanctioned or extra-legal production and exploitation of group-differentiated vulnerability to premature death. British slave owners on 18th century Caribbean sugar plantation Plantations literally worked enslaved Africans to their death. Mortality rates vary over regions and time, but if you survived the Middle Passage on a British slave ship in the mid-18th century, you could expect only to live between five to ten years on a sugar plantation. These black lives were simply expendable, and it was the racist categorization of black people as less than human that supported this system of labor and death. But racism isn't the only governmental force in play when we're talking about the production and exploitation of group differentiated vulnerability to premature death. We also, we also need to talk about class, and in fact, and we're not going to have got time, we could talk about gender, sexuality, disability. But I'm gonna just talk about class, because that's what we're invited to talk about mainly. So we need to talk about class and including the differentiated vulnerability to premature death uh, amongst working class people we can see in Britain today. So what is class? It's like one of those questions like what is race? There are lots of ways of answering this question, but I'm gonna give you one version here. In 1963, in the making of the working class in England, E.P. Thompson, the social historian, argued that the working class was made in England in the period 1780 to 1832. So in the period that overlaps with actually the Haitian Revolution. He details how the enclosure or theft of land in England destroyed working people's access to an independent means of subsistence and transform them effectively into a captive labor force ripe for exploitation in new factory towns. So as people were forced off land, they migrated overseas and within the British Isles. We saw mass migrations of the Irish to Northwest England and the Cornish to Northern mines and mill towns seeking work. Life expectancy fell as families were forced to live in slum courtyards in newly urbanizing towns amidst the filth and stench of open sewers with mass outbreaks of cholera and typhoid. 
So in the early decades of the 19th century, adult life expectancy in some mill towns in Lancashire was as low as 19 years, and up to 50% of working-class children died before the age of two. Industrialising Britain was a society riven with class exploitation and premature death. People struggled against land enclosures. Think of the diggers and the levellers. They fought against enclosures and their enclosure and exploitation in factories and mills. Think Luddites and power loom rioters. And there were centuries of food riots, mainly led by women, during periods of famine and inflationary food prices. Um, not trying to give you any ideas, but food rioting might be something uh, to think about in the current period of inflationary food prices. And the argument of Thompson is that these struggles against poverty awakened a new class consciousness. So through these struggles against land enclosures and against factory owners who exploited them, a heterogeneous body of working people came to understand themselves as a class with shared interests and they fought for living wages, for better working conditions, and fought for what we today term welfare, access to health services, education, decent housing, elder care, and of course, the vote. However, Thompson's story of how the working class was forged through struggle is an island story that obscures the imperial context of slavery and colonialism through which English industrial society unfolded. As the Caribbean historian Eric Williams argued, by 1750, every trading and manufacturing town in England had some connection to plantation slavery, and it was profits from the colonial trade, which were in part a source of the capital that financed the Industrial Revolution. So while people levelled ditches and rioted and smashed power looms across England's industrial towns, enslaved and indentured people rioted against British property-owning classes in the colonial world. And in Haiti, as noted earlier, they succeeded and have been punished for it ever since. My point is that English-owned slave factories on the African coast, British, Cotton mills and British-owned sugar and cotton plantations in the West Indies form part of the same archipelago of enclosure and exploitation. Working-class histories of industrial capitalism within England were one part, are one part of a global human history of slavery and indenture, poverty wages, exploitation and resistance through which the 20th century British state was form, forged. So, it might be useful to think about class struggle in historical terms as involving the formation of a heterogeneous imperial working class on the move, a multitude comprised not only of the male proletariat factory worker, but of child factory workers, indentured labourers, impressed sailors, servants, runaways, plantation labourers. Of course, the profits from empire and industry flowed away from the colonies back into Britain. And in the 20th century, what would become the modern British state and the welfare state was funded through colonial plunder and grounded also in the labor of those people from former empires who came to build 
modern British state after the Second World War. Nevertheless, in these histories of the struggle of working people within Britain and across empire against exploitation and impoverishment, there's a common thread, commonalities and threads of commonalities in the global history of making of modern Britain. It's imperative that we are conscious of the ways in which we are figured against the backdrop of these histories Imogen just laid out. Being awake to history, our own histories, and the histories written and created for us by others is both an analytic practice and a politics. Being awake to history creates possibilities for resistance against those invisible categories and rules, including classifications of race and class which we might otherwise simply absorb or passively accept. Being awake is not a destination because these processes are always changing and evolving. But the key is that the history of human categorization is what informs the contemporary struggle. So we need to understand what the sociologist C. Wright Mills terms are private troubles and how they are entangled with historical, social, political, and economic forces. And this understanding that what may feel like private or local troubles uh, are actually political troubles was pivotal to the global liberation and freedom movements of the mid-20th century. As Satnam Verdi puts it, by the late 1960s, large parts of humanity across the world were in collective motion in pursuit of the most basic of human aspirations, to make life more livable. These movements variously attempted to expand categories of the human and the citizen, to fully include women, disabled people, lower caste, negatively racialized and colonized subjects. Feminist and LGBTQ movements, disabled people's movements, anti-colonial movements, civil rights, black power movements, Dalit right movements. All of these drew on experiential knowledge of oppression as a means of radically questioning the systems of human stratification that subtend capitalist and colonial societies. And alongside concrete demands for equality and justice, what these emancipatory movements held in common is they merged out of people's collective demands to be recognised as equally human. As Stokely Carmichael put it in 1966, I am black, I know that. I also know that while I am black, I am a human being. At their most radical, these movements for equality were abolitionist movements in that they sought to dismantle and overthrow white supremacists, ma masculinists, and Eurocentric templates of the human, which were grounded in what Catherine McKittrick terms the manufacturing of profitable and brutal hierarchies of human difference. Today, we are living through the capitalist counter-revolution. We need to understand neoliberalism as a backlash against these freedom movements. This is what we are currently living through. This backlash has emerged through the rise of authoritarian politics across the world today, in the mainstreaming of ethno-nationalism, in the ascendance of the far-right white supremacist politicians, parties and policies, in the cultivation of nostalgia for empire and the erosion of what was won in the 20th century. What we are seeing in the 21st century is an attack on the liberatory gains 
of the previous century through the rise of anti-abortion politics, rise in prison population, populations, marginalizing disabled people, and the destruction of welfare systems. But it's not just the liberatory gains they're contesting. We are also seeing new attacks via powerful coalitions of transphobic, queerphobic, anti-black, and Islamophobic groups who align themselves with the capitalist elite. Crucially, there is money to be made in the spread of hateful and harmful politics. So one of the things we're trying to foreground, I think, in our conversation with each other, Chantal and I, is that racism and class exploitation are not simply top-down processes of social control. They're made and remade by people's struggles against their capture and enclosure in these classificatory systems. People's struggles for freedom against the enclosing forces of poverty and exploitation against capital. These struggles are central if we're going to hang on to the utopian aim of abolishing the abolition of inequalities. What we want to draw attention to now is how these categories of human difference need to remain a site of a double movement, the movement between theory and praxis. How do we wake up and fight back? Or how have we been waking up and fighting back? This work is, of course, um, encapsulated by the late Sivanandan. This quote's from Sivanandan reflecting on the work of the Institute of Race Relations. Um, and it's from a conversation with Avery Gordon and Siva Notes. There has to be an organic relationship between the experience and its meaning for, us, for it to lead to action. There has to be an organic relationship between theory and praxis, a relationship that takes in the general state society economy and the particular, the individual, the community, both at once, moving between the two levels. This is especially so in the fight against racism because it combines the existential and the political oppression and exploitation, race and class. So what we need is knowledge production rooted in political education, which centers reparative, inclusive, and historically informed ways of learning and understanding social formations. Pivotal to this, of course, is listening and speaking. So on screen now are some examples of some brilliant political education resources primarily produced beyond the written word. These are what we understand as radical pedagogies of practice. One of the examples is a podcast on screen I co-founded called Surviving Society, and it happens to be um, the most popular sociology podcast in the UK. <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to talk a bit about Surviving Society as an example of the double movement. So Surviving Society is produced as both a local and global form of audible political education about race and class. It's a micro version of the possibilities of the double movement. As with the examples on screen, we are presenting podcasting or scholarship produced beyond the written word as an expression of sociological theory and method. It embraces what Les Back describes as the art of listening or the radical possibilities of speaking on matters collectively. We know that theory and historical analysis is there to tell us how things are. But our role now as political educators in this current crisis requires us to find better and more imaginative ways of educating the masses. And I think possibly one of the biggest issues for political educators right now is this double movement. Doing what Yasmin Gunaratnam contends as working with and against categories of dif difference. 
Critically for this moment, we cannot assume that if one experiences the sharper end of inequalities like racism, that they understand and can speak on what is happening to them. For example, thinking back to our earlier points about how in spite of marginalization, some will still opt to align with the capitalist elites. So it's about understanding that racism is hard analytical work. It's about taking people with us rather than telling people what to think and feel, something that the left is notoriously bad at doing. Once we understand this work of naming oppression and their interlocking systems, we can struggle against them. What I think these examples on screen um, help us do is contemplate and work through the following questions and statements. Number one, how do we move between what people are actually experiencing and categories of difference? Number two, recognizing how the current crisis is unprecedented, but also recognizing the fact that we need to address how many were not surviving before this current crisis. Number three, how do we actually deal with the current emergency whilst working to understand what our advocacy work as political educators looks like? And number four, our method as educators needs to be attentive to communicating the multicultural radical tradition, or as Imogen says, the utopian tradition, i.e. troubling and abolishing that which oppresses us. Since 2020, and in the wake of the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement in the UK, I've been working with a local black history group, a community group called Lancaster Black History. This community group has worked with, works with teachers, social workers, school pupils, museums, artists, faith groups, and more, undertaking research with the community as part of what I would term a radical grassroots movement of public education which seeks to acknowledge, memorialize and transform local understandings of one city's Lancaster's connection to transatlantic slavery and plantation economies. So Lancaster was the fourth largest slave trading port in, the eight, in 18th century Britain. This work, uh, but it's, it's been very much a hidden history in the city. This has included work with black British artists to bring to life hidden histories of black Lancastrians, the development of walking tours in the city, and the transformation of school curriculums in the local region. So by the end of next year, every single child in every primary school in our district will include local connections to the slavery business as part of their education. Kind of give you a taste of, I suppose, what, when we were thinking about how to respond to the question of race and class, we were thinking of examples of micro-level things that we were doing and that other people also were doing that speak to this question of political education um, or waking up or being awake as a kind of response to um, the crisis we're in that doesn't reproduce the kind of dualistic separation of, for example, the white working class from the rest that Nasser referred to in his introduction. So how, what are the forms of pedagogical work that we need to do in communities um, to try and transform 
and refuse those kind of oppositions, understanding Britain as a place that was made through histories of empire as well as histories of uh, class struggle. So I'm going to give another example of the dub double movement, an organisation I'm part of called Leading Roots. And this is a picture of us a couple of weeks ago at Professor Jason Arday's inaugural lecture. In the context of what we have presented today, I'm going to talk about the, how this work to redress the exclusion of black African and Caribbean academics in UKHE is part of the double movement of race and class. In the work of Leading Roots, our aim is to strengthen the academic pipeline of black African and Caribbean students and scholars in the context of a long tradition of systemic exclusion of both our scholarship and physical presence in UK universities. We do this work in recognition that identities are important for forging solidarities against oppression, but that there are always risks in invoking classed and racialized identities as fixed essences like EDI tick box in work. This is about how this type of work can sometimes get misinterpreted outside of historical contexts. What we need to always be thinking about and what we're always thinking about at Leading Roots is the how, the why, and the who of how these ways of classifying people were formed and how and why such identities were bestowed, that being that our exclusion is something that is ideological and historical. In a published article earlier this year, Jason Arday, the social sciences lead at Leading Roots, poignantly evidences, evidenced the disproportionate number of black women and women of color on precarious employment contracts in academia. Professor Arday's analysis on these fixed-term contracts states that at the highest level, racism and precarious employment should be considered a key public health issue, given their significant impact on people, families, communities, and the economy. In addition to this, he is currently leading research on the academic workplace and the impact of racism. He is showing how racism links to a deterioration of mental health as well as physical health. So why do these matters about black scholarship and employment in, the academic, in academic institutions matter for histories of class struggle? It matters because it matters. Yes, this could be positioned as more of a bourgeois political point, but actually who the knowledge producers are and how political education is formed, produced and imagined has always been important. The double movement involves a recognition of the fact that representation does not and will not solve the issue of the lack of value assigned to black scholarship, but also black life here in Britain. But in 2019, the founder and director of Leading Roots, my dear friend Paulette Williams, led on the Broken Pipeline report with myself, Suki Bath and Jason Arday, where we reported that out of nearly 20,000 PhD-funded studentships awarded by UKRI research councils collectively, only 1.2% were awarded to black or mixed black students. So that's 245 out of nearly 20,000. And of those 245 that got funded places, just 30 of those were from black Caribbean backgrounds. And I also want to make clear that this information about the systemic exclusion of black scholarship was not readily available. We had to get a freedom of information request for this data. This is also clearly a matter for our class analysis too. We know that the exclusion of black scholarship in UK academia 
corresponds with the fact that black Britons have been much more likely to be from working class backgrounds upon entry to UK academia. This is the type of data which identifies to us that we still clearly require a partial negotiation with the politics of representation, which is also in recognition of the fact that this kind of politics still won't free us. This is the double movement. So the double movement concerns our discursive and political messaging about these processes. By strengthening the academic pipeline or the roots into scholarship for black people, what we really mean is an emphasis on democratization and transparency that benefits everyone. So finally, I want to end where, uh, where I began, with the state we're in and with the poverty crisis in the UK today. I want to end here because this crisis bears all the imprints of the histories of racism and class struggle, which we've very briefly sought to animate in this talk. I work with anti-poverty groups and organizations, local and national, and, and have done for some time. And this work, my work with these organizations, is guided by an understanding of poverty in Britain today as an issue of economic injustice, a question of social injustice, but one which is forged through global histories of colonial capitalism. Today, entire categories of people, such as asylum seekers, are excluded from the welfare systems afforded to other residents. Recent forced deportations have seen the expulsion of groups such as the Windrush migrants who arrived from former colonies in the 50s to help build the British welfare state. It's only under by understanding how these histories and the new systems of classification and oppression that are alive in the present that we can transform the future. But for me right now, anti-poverty movements are pivotal, intersectional sites of struggle for liberation against the economic injustice of class and racialized oppression. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society. To support our work, you can rate, review and subscribe to host or produce a series of Surviving Society, get in touch with us via Twitter or Instagram.